of you to drop by. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. I see my chorus has brought out the theremin, which can only mean one thing. October is finally upon us. I get so many visitors to my collections at this time of the year. This year, I've decided to go with some more traditional exhibits for the Halloween season. The flowers which you saw in the foyer are from the greenhouse, my own special strain of aconites. You know it as Wolvesbane, which I keep on hand should one of my staff contract Lycanthropy. What? Don't question me. It could happen. Over here, we have a genuine vampire hunting kit from the Transcaucasus, complete with a shard of the True Cross. I have no reason to doubt its veracity. It burned my fingers when I first picked it up. And... If you go upstairs, you shall find my newest exhibit, built especially for this year's festivities. A walk-in closet converted into a home high-ground bunker from which one could wait out the initial phase of the coming zombie apocalypse. No home should be without one. Our feature exhibit this evening comes from author David A. Riley, a writer of horror, fantasy, and SF fiction. His first professionally published story was in the 11th Pan Book of Horror in 1970. He has had stories published by Doubleday, Daw, Corgi, Sphere, Rock, Playboy Paperbacks, There's a Blast from the Past, Robinsons, and in magazines such as Aboriginal science fiction, dark discoveries, fear, whispers, and fantasy tales. All in all, a very respectable bibliography. He must be slumming to be appearing on a show such as this. It will be read for us by our favorite rogue with the brogue, Mr. Vic. After Nightfall by David A. Riley Elliot Wilderman never struck anyone as a person possessing that necessary instability of character which makes men, in sudden fits of despair, commit suicide. Even his landlady, Mrs. Jowett, never had even the vaguest suspicions that he would ever do anything like that. Why should she? Indeed, Wilderman was certainly not poor. He was in good health, and was amiable and well-liked in the old-fashioned village of Heron, 
And in such an isolated hamlet as this, it took a singularly easygoing and pleasant type of person to be able to get on with its definitely backward and in many cases decadent population. Civilization had barely made an impression here for the past 200 years. Elsewhere, such houses as were common here and lived in by those not fully sunken into depraved bestiality were thought of as slums. Ancient edifices supporting overhangs, gables, high-peaked roofs, bizarrely raised pavements three feet above the streets and tottering chimneys that towered like warped fingers into the eternally bleak sky. Despite the repellent aspects of the village, Wilderman had been enthusiastic enough when he arrived early in September, taking a previously reserved room on the third floor of the solitary inn, he soon settled down and became a familiar sight wandering around the wind-ravaged hills which emerged from the woods in barren immensities of bracken and hardy grass, or visiting various people, asking them, in his tactful and unobtrusive way, about their local folklore. In no way was he disappointed and the volume he was writing on anthropology soon had an abundance of facts and information. And yet, in some strangely elusive way, he felt the shadow of dissatisfaction. It was not severe enough to worry him, or even impede his creative abilities and cheerfulness, but all the same it was there, like some imp of the perverse it nagged at him hinting that something was wrong. Having been here a month, his steadily growing hoard of data had almost achieved saturation point and little more was really needed. Having done far better than he had expected prior to his arrival, he decided that he could now afford to relax more, investigating the harsh but strangely attractive countryside and the curious dwellings about it, something which he had only been able to do on a few brief occasions before. As he had heard from many of his antiquarian friends, Heron itself was a veritable store of 17th and early 18th century buildings, with only a few from any later periods, except for the ramshackle huts, and even these were perversely fascinating. None of them exhibited any features suggesting comfort, sanitation and ventilation were blatantly disregarded and hampered to an unbelievable extent. Roughly constructed from wood, veneered with mould, the murky insides infested with the humid and sickening stench of sweat. They were merely dwellings to sleep and shelter in, nothing more. In fact, the only feature which he noticed they had in common with the other buildings was that each of them had heavy, wooden doors, reinforced from the outside with rusted strips of iron, barred by bolts or fastened with old Yale locks from within. Apart from the plainly obvious fact there was nothing inside them to steal, Wilderman was puzzled at such troublesome, if not expensive, precautions against intruders. Finally, when an opportunity presented itself, Wilderman asked Abel Wilton, a thick-set man with a matted beard and cunningly suspicious eyes, 
and one of the degenerates inhabiting these huts why such precautions were taken. But, despite his fairly close acquaintance with the man, for whom he had previously bought liquor and shared tobacco with for information about local legends, all the response he got was a flustered reply that they were to keep out the wild animals that run and aid in the ills, where none but those possessed go, where they wait for us, coming down here at night and unten. Or so Wilson claimed. But his suddenly narrowed eyes and obvious dislike for the subject belied him. Though Wilderman tactfully decided to accept his explanation for the moment. After all, it would do him no good, he reasoned, to go around accusing people of being liars. It could only result in drawing unto himself the animosity of Wilton's kinfolk who, ignorant though they were, were extremely susceptible to insult. However, after having noticed this point about the clustered huts on the outskirts of Heron, Wilderman realised that all of the other houses that he had entered also had unusually sturdy locks, not only on their doors either. Most had padlocks or bolts across the shutters on their windows too, though they were already protected by bars on the ground floors. But, when he questioned someone about this, he again received a muttered reply about wild beasts, as well as the dangers of thieves, and again, he did not believe it. He could have been convinced of the possibility of thieves, even in the worthless huts, but how could he possibly accept the wild animals when he had never even seen a sign of them during his now frequent rambles across the hills? Certainly, none that were of any danger at all to man. And so, realising then that any further approaches in this subject would probably only bring similar results, he did not pursue it any further, though he fully intended to keep it in his mind. Perhaps, he thought, this was what had been troubling him all along. It was at this time, in late October, when he was beginning to pay closer attention to his surroundings, that he first realised that no one ever left their houses after dusk. Even he himself had never gone out after nightfall before since it had kept light until late, but as the nights became longer, creeping remorselessly into the dwindling days, this universal peculiarity in Heron became more and more apparent to him, and adding yet another mystery to be solved. The first time he had brought this to the attention was one evening when he tried to leave the inn and found that both the front and back doors were locked. Irritably, he strode up to Mrs. Jowett, an elderly woman, grey of face and hair, with needle-like fingers and brown teeth that seemed to blend in with the gloom of the sitting room where she sat knitting a shawl. Without preamble, he asked why the inn had been locked at so early an hour. For a moment, she seemed to have been stunned into silence by his outburst and immediately stopped her work to turn towards him. In that brief instant, her face had paled into a waxen mask. Her eyes, like Wilton's, narrowing menacingly. Or were they? Wilderman conjectured in surprise, hooded to hide the barely concealed fear he felt he could glimpse between the quivering lids. 
Oh, we always lock up at night, Mr. Wilderman, she drawled at length. Always have and always do. It's one of our ways. Perhaps it's foolish, you might think so, but that's our custom. Anyhow, there's no reason to go out when it's dark, is there? There's nought here in the way of entertainment. Besides, can't be too careful. More goes on than you'd suspect or want to. Not only is there animals that kill us in our sleep, but some of them in the huts. I'm not saying who, mind you, wouldn't think twice of breaking and taking all I've got if I didn't lock him out. Her reply left little with which Wilderman could legitimately argue, without seeming to do so solely for the sake of argument, and he was loath to antagonise her. Always he was sure that he was here only on the townspeople's toleration. They could very easily snub him, or even do him physical damage and get away with it. Justice, a dubious word here, was at best rudimentary. It depended for a large part on family connections, and as good as open bribery. At its worst and most frequent, it depended on personal revenge, reminding Wilderman distastefully of the outdated dueling system of latter-day Europe, though with significantly less notice taken of honour. Convinced that fear of wild animals was not the reason for Mrs Jowett's locking the door after dusk, Wilderman became determined to delve further into this aggravating mystery. The next morning, rising deliberately at dawn, he hurried noiselessly down the staircase to find his landlady busy unlocking the front door. So engrossed was she in this seemingly arduous task that she did not notice his presence. Finally, succeeding in turning the last of the keys, she cautiously prized the door open and peered uneasily outside. Evidently seeing nothing to alarm her, she threw the door open and knelt down to pick up an enamel dish from the worn doorstep outside. Filled with curiosity, Wilderman tried to see what was on it, but could only glimpse a faint red smear that might have been a reflection of the sun rising liquescently above the hills. Before Mrs Jowett could turn and see him, he retraced his steps to the second floor, walking back down again loudly and calling a greeting to her. After a few brief but necessary comments about the weather, he left, stepping out into the cold but refreshing early morning air. The narrow streets were still half obscured by mists, through which beams of sunlight shone against the newly unshuttered windows like drops of molten gold. As he slowly made his way down the winding street, he could not help but notice the plates and dishes left on many of the doorsteps. Some others had been shattered and left on the stagnant gutter and ran down the centre of the street to a mud-clogged grate at the end. It was immediately obvious to Wilderman that these dishes had contained meat, raw meat, as shown by the watery stains of blood still on them, but why should the villagers leave food out like this, he asked himself. Every one of them, including those in the fetid huts, even though they had little enough to eat at the best of times. Such behaviour was evident here seemed ludicrous to him. Why indeed 
Should they have left food out like this, presumably for animals, when they dare not go out after nightfall for fear of the very creatures which the meat would only attract? It didn't make any sense. That people in Heron were not exceptionally kind and generous to animals he knew, quite the opposite in fact. Already he had seen what remained of one dog, a wolfhound with Alsatian blood in its savage veins that made a nuisance of itself one Saturday on Market Street. Its mangled carcass, gory and flayed to the bone, had almost defied description after some ten or so heavy boots, backed by resentful legs, had crushed it, writhing into the cobbles. Then why, if they had no other feelings but contempt for their own animals, should they be so unnaturally benevolent to dangerous and anonymous beasts? Obviously, though, no one would tell him why they did this. Already he had tried questioning them about their heavily locked doors with only the barest of results. There was, he knew, only one way in which he would have the slightest chance of finding out anything more. And that was to see for himself what came for the food. Preparing himself for the nocturnal vigil, he returned to his room and spent the rest of the day rereading several of his notes and continuing his treatise from where he had left off the previous day. Nightfall soon came, and with it an all-penetrating fog that tainted everything, even the inside of his room, with an obscuring mist. Sitting on a high-backed chair by the window, he cursed it but was adamant that the fulfilment of his malign curiosity would not be foiled by a mist. Almost as soon as the sun had disappeared beneath the fog-hidden mountains, Wilderman heard several nearby doors being opened, though no one called out. The only sound was that of the indistinct clatter of plates being placed on the pavements before the doors were hastily slammed shut and locked. Following this came an absolute silence in which nothing stirred on the fog-shrouded street. It was as though all life and movement had come to an end, disturbed only by the clock atop the hearth within his room, as it slowly ticked out the laboured seconds and minutes. Then something caught his attention. Looking out, over the worn windowsill, he stared down at the street, trying to penetrate the myopic mist. Something or things were coming down the street, but the noises were strange and disturbing. Not the anticipated padded footfalls of wild cats or dogs gone feral from neglect or cruelty. No, the sound that reached his ears were far from expected but were like a sibilant slithering sound, as of something possessed by an iron determination dragging itself sluggishly across the cobbles. A tin plate was noisily upended and went clattering down the street, coming to a halt at the raised pavement beneath his window. As he leaned out further to look, he saw a darkish, shadowy thing. A hulking shape appear. For several moments following this intrusion, 
he heard no more until the creature found its food and began to devour it. Pulling himself together, Wildman shouted to scare whatever was beneath him away, but as the cry echoed dismally down the street to the clock tower in the end of the square, it sounded even more hysterical at each dimming repetition, more forlorn and pathetic. There was only an instant's pause before he heard the other milling creatures on the street begin to drag themselves across and along it, deserting their food to make their way to the inn. And with them came a fiendish tittering, ghoulish in its overtly inhuman form, devoid of all but the foulest of feelings, hatred, lust, and surprising Wilderman in his interpretation of it, almost insatiable greed. So clear was it in the vague sounds shuddering below that he felt the tremors of panic growing inside him, sweat streaming down his face. Again, after an inner struggle, he called out, his voice rasping with fear. In answer came a scratching at the base of the inn beneath his window, as though something sought to surmount the decaying barrier. More shapes were gathering on the street, slithering down towards the inn and scratching at it. Trembling fiercely, he realised why the villagers took such precautions as they did and why none spoke or left their houses at night, leaving the village as though deserted, but the facade had been broken. They knew he was here. They had heard him. Picking up a heavy, four-edged book, he hurled it down at the creatures below. As it struck them, there was the sound as of a large stone falling into mud, and then a series of cracks like breaking bones, thin, brittle ones, shattered by the copper-bound book. At this, the horrid sounds increased into a crescendo of fiendish glee, a shriek as inhumane as the others, yet still possessing the wretched qualities of agony and terror echoed down the street. But loud and terrible though this was, no one in any of the neighbouring houses appeared to see what was happening. All shutters and doors remained closed. A sudden breeze that died almost as soon as it came, sent the fog floundering from the street and scattering wisps. Wildermen saw the shapes more clearly, though they were blurred even now by the gloom. For a time he had thought them to be animals, hybrids of some sort, but what he now saw was neither wholly bestial nor human, but possessed, or seemed to be possessed, in the shadow world they inhabited of the worst features of each. Hunched, with massive backs above stunted heads that hung low upon their chests, they dragged themselves along with skeletal arms which, when outstretched above their shoulders into the diffused light of his room, proved white and leprous, crumbling as though riddled with decay. Tapering to gangrenous stumps, their fingers opened slowly painfully and closed again before the mist returned and resealed them in a spectral haze. When once more half hidden in the fog, 
Wilderman saw that the shadows were converging upon one spot, which then became progressively clearer, more distinct. And suddenly, with the self-consuming quicklime of fear, he realised why. Slowly, inevitably, they were climbing upon each other to form a hillock. A living hillock to his window. Again, he threw a book at them, and then another, and another, each more savagely than the last. But though they seemed to crash into and through the skulking bodies, the mound still continued to grow, and from the nethermost extremes of the mist-filled street he could make out others slithering and shuffling towards the inn. In alarm, Wilderman threw himself back from the window, slamming and fastening its shutters as he did so. Then, in a fit of nausea, he staggered to a basin on his dresser and was violently sick. Outside, the tittering was continuing to grow louder, nearer. Awful in its surfeit of abhorrence, it filled Wilderman with increasingly more dread at every passing instant. With movements strained from forcing himself to resist the panic he felt growing inside him, he crept behind the writing desk in the centre of the room until, with his hands clenched tightly on it, he faced the shuttered window, his face shivering uncontrollably as his eyes stared harder and harder at the window, waiting, dreading the end of his wait, fearing the expected arrival. And still, from outside, the gibbering, the hellish, inhumane giggling increased in volume until suddenly it ended and a scratching of claws on wood took its place. The shutters shook and rattled on their creaking hinges so violently that they threatened to give way at any moment. And then they did. Myriad shrieks of fiendish glee flooded Wilderman's room, shrieks that mingled with and then utterly overpowered and drowned the tortured screams of anguish, terror and then agony that were human, and which ended as the slobbering, tearing sounds of eating took their place. The next day, as a reluctant son reared itself in a blood-red crescent above the pale pines forest to the east, the locked door to Wilderman's room was forced open by two of Mrs. Jowett's permanent guests after her unsuccessful attempt to rouse him earlier. As the men pushed and beat at the old oak panels, she waited behind them, shivering as she remembered the cries of the night when she lay locked in her own room down the passageway wide-eyed in fear and dread. So had, as she could tell by her red-rimmed eyes and fearful expressions, the two men. With a mournful rending of wood, the door fell inwards as the men were contorted with disgust and nausea. Mrs. Jowett looked into the room and screamed. Inside the room was cluttered, with shattered and overturned furniture, scratched till the wood was bare, 
sheets torn to shreds, and a skeletal thing that lay amidst a bloody upheaval of tattered books, manuscripts, pens and cloth. Bones scattered to every corner. Though the circumstances surrounding Wilderman's death did not show even the vaguest trace of suicide, this was the verdict solemnly reached by the coroner, a native of Heron, four days later in the poorly lit village hall. All through the hastily completed inquest, Wilderman's various relatives were refused permission to view his remains before they were interred in the cemetery on the outskirts of the village. The coroner said that his mode of self-destruction, drowning himself in a nearby river, and the fact that it had taken nearly a week to find him, had left the body in a state that was most definitely not wise to be seen. It would be better to remember him as he was, said the wrinkled old man, nervously cleaning his wire-framed bifocals, than as he is now. While outside unnoticed by the visitors. The church warden completed his daily task of beating down the disrupted earth on the graves in the wild and tawny burial ground, whispering a useless prayer to himself before returning to his home for supper. That didn't end well. Serves him right for treating his landlady's books in such a manner. I mean, really, who throws books out of a window at zombies? Books are treasures to be treated with respect and care. And they don't nearly crack the skull the way they need to. What was he thinking? At any rate, I think it's time to clean up and get ready for tomorrow's visitors, which means that it's time for you to be on your way. Do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. If you like our stories, get your friends to listen as well. And if you don't, well, why are you still here? I really shouldn't have to repeat this every month. Our theme song is by string punk band Deus Ex Vapore Machina. This episode was produced in October of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.